Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're focusing on commercial real estate. It's certainly been a pretty volatile and challenging last couple of years in the sector. But as things get back to, or at least head in the direction of normal, what does the landscape look like for the sector What's happened and is happening to all the prime office property on Wall Street in Canary Wharf at La Défense? Are there opportunities out there as things pick up? Why are some high-profile London offices, for example, continuing to change hands for hundreds of millions of dollars if such offices are partly empty? And if they're not standing idle and things are moving and moving fast, well then, what's driving premium prices? Is it office space that facilitates and enables flexible working? To discuss all these questions and shed some light, we're joined today by the Chief Economist of UBS Global Wealth Management, Paul Donovan, along with Thomas Verigath, strategist in the CIO, and we'll hear from Monocle's business editor too. Let's start with our good friend, Paul Donovan, Chief Economist in UBS Wealth Management. Paul, it's really interesting that we've touched in on commercial real estate and and the scene here once or twice over the past couple of years for obvious reasons, you know, think of all of that prime office property, whether, you know, we're talking about Wall Street or Canary Wharf or in the city or wherever it might be. Are there opportunities here? It's an interesting moment. Of course, businesses are having to make some bold calls. It's been very dynamic and pretty volatile, hasn't it, over the last couple of years? Well, it has. And I think one of the issues, of course, is that prime commercial real estate is not necessarily prime anymore because as we're changing how we're working, as we're moving to hybrid methods of working, more flexible methods of working, office design needs to accommodate that. And so you know, a hedge fund in the West End of London in a beautifully converted Georgian townhouse straight out of Bridgerton, that may have worked for the old way of working where people are in separate offices and you have your physical space and stay in it doesn't necessarily work so well in a more flexible, remote desk sharing type environment. And so I think one of the big challenges that we're going to see is companies trying to decide what sort of space they want and whether the physical space that has traditionally been sought is going to be quite so desirable in the future. Paul, that's really interesting. So is it a question then of looking at I guess we have to talk about the nuts and bolts of what makes office space practical, right? Given those constraints or opportunities, depending on your view of flexible working, do we have a sense yet of what the gauges are for that very practicality, given the backdrop that you've described? Well, I think there are some fairly obvious things that we we need to focus on. That if you're going to be really efficiently using your real estate in a in a hybrid working system then what you're going to need is an office that has very good connectivity you know if you're going to be doing calls on zoom or skype or whatever obviously you want them to be good quality calls and so that's going to be important but also in terms of the physical space you sort of move away from the idea that this is my desk this is my office space and you know no one else must you know, tread on the hallowed carpet well that doesn't work because you're going to be uh, having a more flexible approach and if if somebody's in they use whatever desk space is available so that means that you perhaps you're moving to a more open plan design and again some of the old traditional buildings and conversions don't really 
lend themselves to that necessarily. It's not what they were designed for. It's a, a very different sort of way of working. So this more hybrid system, we we move away from sort of the, the Dickensian counting house and, you know, the compartmentalized environment into one which is more open plan, more flexible in terms of its use. And I think that's where some of the real challenges are going to come through. But we can also think about the desirability of location in this context and whether we start to see people saying, well, if we're only going to have one office, we want it to be in the best possible location for multiple transport links. We want your amenities around it. Whereas in the past, you may have had sort of satellite offices that weren't necessarily you know, particularly well served by local amenities. Well, those are the offices that go in this environment. You want to have it so that if people are coming into the office, it's as enjoyable and pain-free an experience as it can possibly be. Yeah, Paul, I want to ask you a bit about how we make sense of this. And it's interesting to try and find data points to try and look at some statistics. And there are a few measures. I know there's a, a Bloomberg gauge, isn't there? This sort of index, this PRET index, uh, which is supposed to speak and indeed does speak to measuring the return to work of people. But I know there are one or two logistical problems implicit in that, which, again, we sort of need to acknowledge before we try and look at what such a, an index ostensibly tells us. I mean, I think this is it's a very good example of the difficulty of gauging what's going on. So the Bloomberg Pret Index is counting how many sandwiches pret a sells. And that sounds like a very good way of measuring how many office workers there are, but there are any number of complications with this. So one may well be that if you actually have fewer workers in your office because of flexible working, you may not have in-house catering facilities anymore. You may say, actually, you know what, we're, we're not going to provide an in-house cafeteria if we're only running at, say, 40% of staff coming in, in which case people are forced to go out to prep. So that gives a misleading impression. You may also have this clustering effect that we've talked about where people choose to go to more central, more desirable locations, and they close down the satellite offices. So it's not that you've got more people working in offices, driving up PrEP sales, it's you've got more people working in offices close to PrEP sandwich shops, driving up PrEP sales. It's a slightly different thing that's happening there. And then, of course, there's other questions about if you've got fewer people returning to offices overall, fewer people working, then small independent food retailers are perhaps more likely to be closing down. And so you're actually ending up with less choice in the environment. So it all becomes very, very problematic because we've got lots and lots of different competing issues going on. What I would say, I think, as as we look at this is the impression that I have got is that the, the pandemic caused a shift in mentality. And this is where I think things are really critical. That before the pandemic, the approach was, I'll work in the office unless I have a reason to work at home. And now I think the approach is, I'm going to work from home unless I have a really good reason to be in the office. So we flipped things around. And that I think is going to be quite hard to measure, but it's, it's a really important psychological change on the part of the office worker, I feel. 
If we then look at, you know, the the wider commercial real estate landscape, Paul, is it necessary then to look maybe slightly beyond office real estate specifically, which is clearly going to have this adjustment period that you've been talking about, to other sectors that are also relevant in the commercial real estate environment, whether that's, I don't know, hospitality more broadly, or do we look at, say, industrial commercial real estate, warehousing, things like that, which one imagines the experience of the last two years has done this process of accelerating existing changes in in behaviours. Is that where potentially then more immediate opportunity might lie for investors, for example? Again, I think we're still sort of feeling our way in the dark a little bit in in terms of a lot of this behaviour. So one of the things that might come around from hospitality, say, is if people are in the office less frequently, they may choose actually to go out and, and socialize with colleagues when they are in the office automatically. So you know, if you're in the office every day, you think, oh, I can't be bothered to go out tonight. I'm not going to go out with, with colleagues. But if you're only in the office you know, one or two days every fortnight, you might think, well, no, I'm, I'm going to make the most of my time here. So you might actually get more intensity of socialization. Let's see how, how that develops over the course of, of the next six, 12 months. With retail, we've already noticed in the UK, there has been two shifts in, in terms of, uh, of retail pattern, both of which are very telling to this sort of behavior. So the first is that London retail has generally underperformed retail in the rest of the country. And that's because people are working from home. And if you live outside London, you're not going to pop into London on lunchtime in order to go shopping. And secondly, both inside London and outside of London, retail during the week is still below pre-pandemic levels. But retail at weekends outside of London is above pre-pandemic levels. And that, again, is, is reflecting the fact that if you're working from home, you're not in a central business district. You don't pop to the shops at lunchtime, but you will perhaps make more of an effort to go shopping at the weekend, shopping as a leisure activity, destination shopping. So that sort of shift comes in. And then we've got the, the move online. I've it's mentioned uh, in previous programs with you that, you know, in my view, we're going sort of back to an 18th century approach to retail, shopping as a leisure activity you do in person, the boring stuff you do online. And that sort of division between the leisure activity and the boring stuff changes the nature of demand for real estate, for warehousing, because obviously, if you're an online provider, you don't need to be in the center of town, you need to be connected to very good transport routes. Whereas if you're doing shopping as a, as a leisure activity, you need to be a destination, you do need to be central, and you need to be you know, able to provide a really pleasurable experience. And one final thing, I think, as we're, we're talking about real estate, I mean, I think it's worthwhile thinking that if we are moving to a more flexible working practice, if people are saying, well, actually, you know, I don't have to live in a commuting distance to my office, I can live, you know, two hours, three hours away if I'm only going to the office for two days every fortnight or whatever it is. But that then does raise the question about temporary accommodation. Do people want sort of standardized, cheap hotel accommodation near their office? Because if you're going in for two days every fortnight, well, you know, you might go up for two days, stay in in a, a budget hotel near the office for, for one or two nights and then go back to your, your family you know, three hours outside of, of the city where your office is based. And so there's a potential for a different sort of accommodation demand to come out as we start to change 
working practices and, and how we think about the real estate that we occupy. Paul, just one final thing before we bring Thomas in here. I wanted to just ask you, it is interesting that nevertheless, despite these challenges and despite the amount of uncertainty, particularly in that office environment and these big kind of structural social things which are yet to sort of play out fully, we still see some of this commercial real estate, big office blocks, premium spaces, changing hands for similar to or in some cases exceeding pre-pandemic levels big blocks i think ubs's own london hq uh, was you know in the sort of north of a billion dollar transaction if there is such uncertainty why are those transactions happening does that speak to a broader confidence that actually in the longer term certainly from big hitting you know institutional investors things will get more in inverted commas back to normal well i think what it signals is that certain real estate is in relatively short supply and demand is increasing. We were talking about the need for the right sort of office space. Well, the London UBS uh, headquarters was designed for flexible working because UBS in London has had flexible working in place since 2016. And so you know, we have got a, a beautifully designed office for flexible working. So of course, this is a highly desirable piece of real estate if all of a sudden you're going to a flexible working process. I do wonder what's going to happen to those, you know, converted Bridgerton style Georgian townhouses that were converted into offices and which I really don't think are necessarily fit for purpose. A few years ago, because of the the location, you know, a Mayfair location or something like that, considered very, very desirable and demanded as office space. I wonder whether we start to see places like that being converted back into residential real estate because they offer generous accommodation, which is also going to be desirable in the future, but not as commercial real estate. So I think that we will continue to see strong demand for the right sort of space. Where I think you may find greater problems is with the shopping mall that isn't a destination or the satellite office that you know was perhaps built in the 1960s for a, a very, very different way of working. Those are going to be a little bit more problematic, perhaps, uh, in terms of the nature of real estate demand. Thomas Verigoth, I wanted to ask you, Thomas, first of all, you know, if we take a kind of step back, Paul's given us some interesting detail there. I'm interested in if we look at, you know, commercial real estate as a sort of sector, if you like, I'm interested in the the extent to which, you know, as we look, it doesn't matter what geography we're talking about, the extent to which sound fiscal policy, you know, in the months and years ahead can aid the recovery of this sector. Is that something we need to, to, to look at and to think about? Yeah, the fiscal policy will will certainly have um, consequences on different uh, sectors. But I would say, looking at um, fiscal policy, that would rather be a question for retail, mm. less than for other sector, for example. So I cannot say now fiscal policy is will matter that much. It will rather depend on in which sector you are active and in which sector policy may change and have also some consequence on the overall costs that the tenants will have to take <laughs> on their own. And also thinking again about retail, where you we discussed we have this competition with online uh, retail that is, of course, still to to stay here, and where fiscal policy 
especially for retail, may may have some consequences for tenants and then from at the end from from lenders. But otherwise, I, I don't see that much that fiscal policy will matter uh, for for real estate. It was a question of supply and demand, uh, as always. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, you might have a similar view. If we look on the monetary side, then do we need to look for monetary policy working to ease these inflationary pressures again, which is a very live theme? Well, here in the UK, the US, wherever we look around the world, is that is that also important? Or again, are there other more important things to think about? Certainly is, is a topic to look at, but rather on the side of the interest cost. Of course, interest costs are, are linked to inflation. Nominal rates are one element where inflation will or may have or has already an impact. And um, the inflation growing and growing, <laughs> well, we hope we reach the peak this month or next month, but this matter for the for the refinancing of the expectation. But I was, would rather uh, focus on the expected inflation by the capital market and not that much um, focus on the headline inflation because the headline inflation is, is today that high that nobody will will expect <laughs> your tenant to accept an increase in, in rent by 7 8%, something like that. So... Inflation expectation around two, around 2.5%. If that's what the market will focus on, and that would be the level we see, for example, in the US, very efficient capital market, then uh, that would be something that tenants and landlords may agree on. And and the pass-through of inflation from landlord to to tenant and, and to rent level may function in that kind of market. I'm not that concerned about about inflation in in regards of headline inflation, in regards of um, adapting the the rent level to to the inflation, but rather uh, we should look at the refinancing cost, and that matters for the value of the properties, of course, because properties are always bought with leverage <laughs> and so increasing uh, reference costs of course will uh, potentially diminish your expected uh, value for for your property let's pick up on a couple of things that paul actually touched upon i, I was interested in this point about broader societal almost changes you know things like the advance of technology and how that reshapes behaviors whether that's in working or in the retail space does that mean that there are opportunities potentially in certain areas of commercial real estate that are driven by some of those technology themes i'm thinking about industrial real estate areas like warehousing does that look like a a more promising subset if you like of the sector given that there are as i think paul outlined very helpfully for us earlier you know lots of questions still about things like office usage and occupancy and deployment in the shorter term do you see the industrial real estate warehousing and so on as being i don't know more more interesting at the moment yeah, it has been already more interesting since uh, a couple of quarters or even a few years already, uh, just because uh, talking about online uh, retail especially is nothing really new, is date more than the last two years uh, through those um, uh, special times and we, we went through. So industrial logistic is really the winner among the different sector, when you look at the total performance that they have uh, realized in the last uh, few years, then it, it's really a confirmation that what we discussed in regard of technology changes uh, having a real impact on the sectors the investor will focus on and 
it, it certainly will continue, even if in some areas we have expected yield on rent for industrial and logistic that are now below the expected yield that you will get on offices. So that tells you that the optimism in regard of industrial and logistic surfaces and the growing need for logistic, especially, of course, as we understand it, has already played very well. So it may continue, but it will not accelerate. We already have seen a lot. So the question will rather be retail and office now. Apartment has been very favored by investors in in the last few years, but that's rather a question that investors have been looking for something that they think this is more resilient than other more cyclical subsector. But the question remain on retail and office. They are recovering already. So when you see the transaction volumes, when you see the pickup in values that again is based on transaction you see is positive again, will they uh, be able to catch up that much? That, that's an open question because the last very important point um, especially is we, we are seeing the change that we discussed about with Paul coming. But the reality of the market is that it has been done so uh, so few <laughs> in order to encounter those new trends that the question remain how the investor will adapt to those new trends. Still a little bit an open question. A final thought, perhaps, Thomas Verigat, on transaction volumes? Transaction volumes have uh, recovered very quickly. So it's, it's very impressive that we see uh, in the first quarter of 2022, where we have the number for, for the US, for example, that we have an increase year on year by something like 60%. So you see that investors are coming back uh, in the office market when talking about the office market. Now we, we, we are still 25% below uh, the level of transaction volume that we, we we had in 2019, but the recovery is very strong. And the last point I would also make in order to understand the discussion we had between those trends that, that we all understand, but the reality where we are still waiting for landlords and tenants to adapt to those trends more quickly than, than we can imagine. And one element to really understand is the rental cost compared to the all operating expense by companies or the revenues. And it's very fascinating to see that, um, especially compared to the revenues, the rental expense for financial industry, for example, is, is around 2% of the total revenue. So th- that may help us to understand why tenants and landlords haven't changed their behaviors uh, that much in relation to what we already discussed and we, we could expect that they should do. <laughs> Thomas Verigoth, and before that, Paul Donovan. Well, listening to that alongside me is Monocle's business editor, David Hadari. And David, just to get Monocle's own house view, if you like, as Thomas and Paul before have been saying, there's much where we just need to wait and see to an extent. However, despite that, it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that it's probably too soon to pronounce on the death of working life in the city as we knew it, which kind of was the house refrain here Going back, what, a year or two? Yeah, it does seem very much like the rumours of the death of the city have been greatly exaggerated. And when you look at 
occupancy rates in central London offices, when you look at tube occupancy rates, ridership numbers, it does seem as though some of those figures are coming back, some of those people are coming back to the office. And as Paul was saying, it seems as though the way in which people go to work, where they go to work is changing. So it may be the case going forward that we see better occupancy of fewer, better equipped offices. So a premium placed on offices that were built just before the pandemic or perhaps even since the pandemic that are geared towards flexible working and fewer satellite offices, perhaps suburban offices will suffer. And one one trend that we are seeing coming through quite strongly is an attempt by big companies to make their offices as attractive as possible for returning workers. And I think that's interesting because, again, that speaks to what's long been a preoccupation of Monocle, which is about making places that are nice to work in, not because it's reactive to a pandemic or some external pressure, but that's just because that's what good businesses should do. And I guess to that point, is it equally important then, David, that we don't underestimate or certainly don't omit from the conversation one of these other premiums, which is the value you can generate, even if it's hard to quantify from being face to face, especially in creative industries. They rely on serendipitous encounters, people coming together literally to share ideas and to find that spark. That has a longer tail. It's hard to put a price on it, but it it's just as important. It's maybe even more important than it ever was. Well, you're absolutely right. There is no substitute for person to person interaction. And in terms of the, the data that we're seeing as well, I spent the other week with the head of TfL, who said it may be the case that the conventional rush hour as we knew it in 2019 may never return, but it's more the case that that, that peak has been squashed and will spread out over a longer period of time. And uh, one of the things that we're also seeing is people packing more plans into the days on which they come into the office. So rather than having five days a week where maybe you go for a quick swift half if you're delicate like I am uh, (laughs) after work um, turning into you go into the office one day a week and maybe have a couple of drinks after work with somebody you grab a couple of coffees with different clients or different colleagues and uh, really capitalize on that serendipity. David Hadari thank you. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance every week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or, as always, you can catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.